Welcome, bienvenue to the Fantasy Tools Podcast. This is a show where fantasy tools discuss fantasy tools. I'm your host, Eric Rentz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Peterson. Our mission is to discuss fantasy baseball and the tools that we're developing that help us manage our teams. Cue that intro music. Biggest news, I think, of the past week was Todd Frazier's triple play. Have you seen this? I have, but I there's some serious bias going on here. Do you just how did you get like just straight full stream Todd Frazier alerts sent to you? Like I feel like you don't miss a single thing that happens to that guy. I just saw it on the Twitters. I mean triple play is pretty rare, and a triple play in which you also get an RBI is hysterically <laughs> rare it was quite a play i i will give you that so despite the fact that you've singled out todd frazier being involved <laughs> mm, yeah no i think he's i think that he's destined for above a 215 era <laughs> <laughs> era <laughs> maybe that too. average i mean that's definite if they put him in so are you uh you're keeping him right i assume uh i i highly doubt that in that in those pinstripes he looks disgusting he really does it's very weird. Did they? Did he? I didn't see. Did he? Does he doesn't have to have any haircut or anything? He's good. No, he's he's G to G. I don't know why I keep using that lately. It's a, the DZs that I'm working through. I think. Please don't. I'm very uncomfortable about that. All right. What about G O T though? Any topics that you want to talk about? I've just laid out a couple of topics that I that I think need to be discussed. You can pick any one in any order. I want to, yeah. I think I think these are always touching on. I enjoyed the fact that there were just two epic battle scenes that they just yada yadded their way through. Yeah. Do you think that there's that they're setting up an eventual extended cut? I mean, or is that like literally all that they filmed from those? I think a little bit of both. Yeah, see, I was trying to figure out, did they film huge battle scenes, and then eventually they were like, wow, well, we only promised seven episodes, so, like, not going to make it. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I don't know why they wouldn't have just made the episode. I mean, the episode was already 70 minutes long. They could have made it an extra 10, though, and added at least the Lannister, um, the Casterly Rock battle. That's the first time that we saw Casterly Rock, right? It seems... <laughs> I don't know. It seems like if you're going to yada yada your way through it, that that was a really expensive set to just build. <laughs> Absolutely. No, this is where this is where we quote Monty Python. It's only a model. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they still had to build walls. We saw both Casterly Rock and High Garden, and they both of those they were just like, eh. That may have existed in someone's computer. We'll show some Lannisters marching in formation. I will say that that had many of the trailer shots in it. Yeah, that episode. Yeah. And while I am glad that they gave all of that screen time to the the John and Danny rapport, there was so much else that felt shortchanged in this. Oh yeah, and they were ta- after the episode. You know, they do the after the episode. Yes, I watched that about too. It. Like, oh, we thought it was just like you know, it chills up our spines. And I'm like, really, guys, you couldn't have cut like five minutes of that and put that into the battle scenes? Maybe, maybe ten minutes. Well, there we go. All right, that was. I guess that's the week in review. The Game of Thrones we can ruin. Today, three emails. Boom, boom, boom. As the closer trades go through. And I'm going to highlight one of those when we get to my section. But oh boy. big trade deadline day. 
what what do you want to highlight from it? I don't know what to think about the U Darvish move because that's. I mean, I know a lot of people can't pick him up, but that's going to be a really good move. We'll get into that a little bit in my section, but you Darvish owners have got to be happy about this. Oh, you Darvish owners have to be happy. Uh, but are you Darvish owners or Sonny Gray owners happier? I don't think Sonny Gray's going to do very well in, in New York. Wins-wise, he's going to be... That's a take. No, I don't, I don't think he's going to do that well. That is a take. Um, Betbox, Darvish versus Gray? Absolutely, as long as I get Darvish. Let's do it in not K's. Everything but K's? Everything but K's. Okay. Are you sad to see Kinsler go? If I don't look at the numbers, yes. <laughs> so we'll talk about we'll talk about this more when I get to my section, but when I like just viscerally think about it, I get I'm really bummed <laughs> that the twins traded him. I can't even imagine what your atrocities you're going to see at the back end of games now. <laughs> but oh yeah, at least you had a good setup man in the ninth inning. Yeah, that's true. But you look at the yeah, I know. But you look at the numbers, <laughs> and uh, and and I'm not that sad to see him go. So we'll see what happens. All right. Well, all that out of the way. This week, Eric is going to talk about park effects which is something that we have danced around and alluded to for quite a bit so we're actually going to put some numbers on it and then i'm going to talk about more progress that i've been making on interfacing with mlb's extremely confusing stats api take it away eric so we are really heading into the home stretch for fantasy baseball some of us are out of the playoff hunt like yours truly while others are poised for a deep run don't say it Reverse jinx. Other people in our league. All right, all right. I won't, I won't say it. I won't say it. One of my favorite parts of baseball is the uniqueness of the fields. Each field is shaped differently. Each field has its own wind patterns, and each field exists in a completely different geography. Do you want to play in a field with no humidity? Sure. Want to play at 5,000 feet? Of course. With a giant wall in left field? You got it. With ivy <laughs> on the outfield wall? Sure, why not? So this all leads to differing environments for the pitchers and hitters. Thus, parks affect the game differently. This is typically glossed over when we mention pitchers' parks and hitters' parks. But there is even more to it than that, than a kind of a plus-minus. So um, that's why we're going to talk about this today. MP, there's a lot of information out there, so... I wasn't able to muck things up quite as much as usual. I'm actually thinking of looking at things pretty raw here. Um, and instead, I put together a spreadsheet that I want us to walk through. Um, I've added a little visualization. But really, this is straight from ESPN using the import HTML table function Google Sheets. I would suggest anyone do that because uh, use that tool because it's really, really helpful. So, Mike, any first impressions here? Well, I just want to also toot the horn of the import HTML. You introduced me to this last year, and that is a powerful tool. It is really helpful. And it is really it helpful. It is really helpful. One of the things that struck me about this is that I was really happy that you added 2016 and 2017 because mm -hmm. the gut check when you look at 2017, like these are not some of these, these are not parks that I've heard about being hitters' parks. Like, what is Target mm -hmm. Field doing adding runs to people? supposedly uh currently but 
and we always I personally always think of it as as more of a pitcher's park. So that that would be my that would be my immediate takeaway. You know, you see most of the usual suspects, but there's definitely some burn in period here. Yeah, there might be. And it might be also that we're at the point in the year. You know, I was thinking that we were at a good time for this because we have enough of a sample size built up. But we're also in the middle of the summer. And I have been to a lot of Target Field games and the ball does fly out of the stadium right now. But once it gets cold, which it is cold in the spring and in the fall (laughs) and Target Field, the ball just dies. All that being said, it is good that we have 2017 and 2016 because Target Field right now, third, it ranks third in um, in terms of like runs added. It was actually ninth last year. So it actually is more of a hitter's park than, than a pitcher's park. So they might have made some changes recently and I think maybe global warming, you know heating up minnesota i gotta get i gotta get my gut check out of the way on this i mean this is just this is not right the way what i was thinking yeah some of these are pretty crazy all right so i've i've started putting together a couple things that i wanted to talk about we're already a little bit into topic number one top five fields right now Mm -hmm. those are top five fields and these are top five fields for added runs so this is looking at every team in that park and away from that park it's saying that they have more runs in that park than they would in, in any other park. So there's been a ton of factoring that's been done and figured out. So Coors Field is number one. Duh. It's, it mm. is at 5,000 feet. It's massive. It means that their balls just fly around there. Chase Field, number two. You know, no humidity. The, the ball just has nothing resisting it in the air also you're still at altitude i mean you you forget that but it's higher than most of the other parks it is target field as mentioned number three right now new yankee stadium is one that i always like as soon as i see i'm like oh yeah of course it's a hitter's park they were talking about that like the first year was built um new yankee stadium is up there and of course arlington whatever the heck they call it right now that field is in the top five so target surprising to both of us but the rest of those those are traditional hitters parks Mm -hmm. all right so let's go to the bottom five fields this is this might be a little bit more interesting so these would be the pitchers parks we've got city field they have done numerous renovations to try to make it less (laughs) pitcher friendly but have failed every single time marlins park marlins park also a cavern is amazing that stanton is able to hit so many home runs it really is bush one of my favorite named fields then at&t park and minute made minute made i forget that minute made is it's the number one pitchers park in terms of runs suppressed i don't know if that's just because the houston astros pitching is so good right now um it's a you know that's a bizarro park i have to say but it was last last year too, in 2016. All right. So, and anything you want to highlight so far? Yeah, I'm happy that Petco is not in the bottom five. That's one that I have. I have a lot of stock invested in Padres not being totally miserable, and uh, Petco has been implicated often as a really miserable ballpark. This doesn't seem to indicate that it's as bad. No, it's it's not as bad. They did do some things a couple of years ago to try to increase the the hitting in that park, and I think it was a little bit more successful than City Field, but it's still just just barely outside that that bottom five 
for um, for hitters. So the three biggest changes I wanted to, these were the ones that surprised me. Each each one that I saw, the Coliseum, aka <laughs> Oakland, number six right now in terms of in terms of hitting and like adding adding runs. What the heck? That has got to that has got to regress to the mean hard. That does. I I mean I I would figure that too. Especially it it's even more confusing being as that's where the A's play. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the A's have to play in those games. The A's this year, how is that possible? They, I guess they only like the home cooking. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, something weird. Well, they just racked up Wrigley. a bunch of they just racked up a bunch of runs against the Twins this past week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, they did. <laughs> All right, so next is Wrigley Field. Now this is a bit more of a hitter's park. We we have we have dined on bratwurst at this uh, at these hollowed grounds, and it kind of is a hitter's park. So it is actually more surprising that last year it was so low on the list, and I think that was in part due to the the pitching it being just amazing last year. And then Citizens, another one that we've been to. So any. Any thoughts on on what's happening in in Citizens that's making it such such a hitter friendly ballpark? Uh, it's not that the Phillies have gotten better, so mm-hmm. uh, no. I you but know I I don't know. Phillies pitching staff is pitching there. Yeah, I mean that's true, but the Phillies pitching staff was pitching there last year, as you pointed out. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I mean maybe that's a better thing, but these are such big outliers that it's hard to imagine that this is just quantifying the volatility. It feels like there has to be something yeah. going on there that we just haven't teased out. So, I guess the other question here is are these candidates to regress to the mean? As in are we going to see those numbers flip in the second half or do you think that these are new trends that we should be holding to and evaluating and you know adding that extra buck for some of these guys in fab i think we'd have to do a lot more deep studying on this but i will say i mean it's already affecting my fab the the ones that i clearly know i mean i picked up gerardo para this week knowing where he was going to be batting this week Mm -hmm. totally based on pitching effects all right there you go all right so and we've talked about specifics now, and now I want to get a little bit more general in a way. So, you know, we've been talking about runs and and um, creating an environment that has either adds runs or suppresses runs. But there's a huge difference between um, this evaluation done on runs created versus home runs. So it is amazing that Barry Bonds hit so many home runs in AT&T Park. Because it is the least friendly ballpark for home runs. And then it's also not surprising that Aaron Judge is hitting so many home runs because Yankee Stadium is a home run conducive environment. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I I think that there's a, a perfect storm of things that are happening for him to for him to have done that well. Oh yeah, of course. But the hit the park is there's no denying that there is a big effect there. Yeah, you know, just, just just the shot in the arm that he got at the start of the season just probably helped him, you know, get get the power that he needed to bulk up and and whatnot. 
Uh, let's not go there, but yes. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> yeah, the shot in the arm from the you know the ballpark effects. Of course, that's what I'm saying. Um, another interesting one is that Minute Maid Park, as I've already mentioned, is was the least um, hitter-conducive park last year, least this year. But it actually is more conducive for home runs. Um, if I remember correctly, I think it's... I think it's um, righty power is actually you can pull the ball pretty pretty well, but otherwise it's cavernous. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so so remember again this this is just to point out that even if we're ta- if a ballpark might be um, hitter unfriendly, it could still could have some some pieces that could make it. Um, interesting for for a different hitting aspect like home runs do you really think that i i view that as a second order effect to runs i don't know Mm -hmm. that i would make any real i i don't feel like i would ever make any hitting decisions based on that would i make would i make pitching decisions based on that if i know that i've got a guy who gives up a lot of fly balls and i'm looking at a huge home run park would it make a difference? Yes. Maybe. I mean, I'm not going to do it sure. for I'm not going to do it for triples or or even strikeouts or even hits, but maybe mm-hmm. home runs. Maybe home runs. Well, that's really more of a like a fly ball kind of pitcher. If you have, if you're looking at a fly ball pitcher, fly ball strikeout pitcher in a um, home run friendly park, avoid him if he's you know if he's not a go to guy. The other park that I pointed out that's oddly unfriendly to home runs is Wrigley. That feels like a regression candidate to me more than anything else. I I don't see that being being a trend that can hold to the end of the year. Mm. We shall find out. It was un it was even more unfriendly to home runs last year. Wrigley Park. We shall see. Bet box? What how give me something to put in the bet box on that. Uh, whether it's going to be above a factor of one or below by Ooh, the end of the year. Above or below one um, from now till end of year or total year? No, just total. Total year. I still think it's going to come in below, but I think it's going to increase. Well, why don't you just below? Me, I mean, I, oh, I would say okay. it's going to be above one. I'd say it's going to be above one. You think it's going to be above one? I think it's going to be below one. Okay, let's we'll set that over under at one. And all right, you have picked the losing side. <laughs> Great. <laughs> all right, so lots of information. This is all to be taken with a grain of salt, but even a grain of salt can tip the scales. Use this information when deciding between players and deciding on a weekly pickup more than a long-term pickup. Um, should you avoid a spot starter, a spot start. <laughs> Should you avoid spot starting a pitcher in cores or chase? Yes. If you're looking for a home run, should you focus on the guy headed to Yankee Stadium over the guy with a series in San Francisco? Yes. Should you drop a top 100 player for a guy with a series in Minnesota? No. So take this all into consideration with your ad drops, but uh, don't overplay any of this. 
I do find it funny that our real MLB teams are on opposite ends of the playoff hunt, and our fantasy MLB teams are also on different ends of the playoff hunt, just flipped. I guess we know Eric's going to be following the MLB more, and I'm going to be following fantasy more. Here's an outtake. You know, it's funny because as soon as I lock in on the profile of things, it's fine. Like, it took me much um, longer to figure out what your um profile looked like, but once I figured it um, out, it's been much easier to, um, to ax those. Um, you got, do you like think of it as a shape? Yeah. Uh, what, uh. Last week, Eric asked me an interesting question when I asserted a fairly strong statement about the, the stability of a statistics. He asked, well, have you actually run an autocorrelation on this? And I thought, I really wish that you hadn't called me out on that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I mulled it over in my head. I thought about it a little bit and I realized, fuck it. I got to run an autocorrelation. I need to do some basic stats. I've always shied away from them a little bit because I find them ambiguous to interpret. And actually, I'm going to present some very ambiguous autocorrelations and some very ambiguous correlation uh, Pearson R's in a minute. But this is still a worthwhile exercise in that not being able to rule out the null hypothesis is always an interesting result in a variety of ways. But so this autocorrelation function, I started thinking about this and I actually did this on a guy that we talked about last week that we recommended, which was Patrick Corbin. Um, mm -hmm. And Patrick Corbin's start last week was uh, mostly acceptable although well outside of the bounds of what he's done in the past. And Patrick Corbin actually serves as a case study of how, of two things. One, small sample sizes can lead you to spurious beliefs. And I'll explain that, explain what my spurious yep. belief was in just a second. And also that autocorrelation is, is very important and getting a measure of the variance and getting a sense there can be important. So if you look at these Corbin graphs, uh, Patrick Corbin's looking strikes to swinging strikes, which I asserted last week, stabilized after eight starts. His is not stabilized in any way, shape, or form. It is decreasing <laughs> like crazy. You run an autocorrelation on this, and there's just no signal. There's nothing that repeats. Nothing. It's not yeah. stable. This is just... So the autocorrelation in this case, um, the, the way that we want to analyze this statistic is normalized between negative one and one. We want to see, uh, we want to see it indicate that it's stabilized, that there's no trend in either direction. This one, uh, uh, it's not zero. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> there's, there's a definite trend here. And if you no, shuffle no, these no. around, you still see the trend. It's still not normalized. Um, but which is strange because if you couple this with his strike fraction as a function of time, which I've long asserted is actually a, a good underlying metric, that is pretty close to zero, with the exception of his last start where he absolutely tanked his strike fraction. Right. And what is that start where he had an amazing start for strike, uh, strike fraction? Well, he's had... You mean you mean the last four weeks, the ones that made us think that we should definitely pick him up? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> this, yeah this, exactly. I will say that the autocorrelation lesson here for me is that 
If you think a guy's really hot over the last four weeks, you should probably run a correlation on a longer time series and look at just how much of an outlier it is. Because I'm yeah, cool yourself down. This is of course tough. Like I'm confident. Like how when do you start to believe that there's an actual trend that's changing? Like oh, Patrick Corbin has actually figured something out. And when do you think right that no, this is actually just the high point of a of of his ebbs and flows and the autocorrelation gives us some way to tease that out. I would rather see a low positive number indicating, okay, Patrick Corbin is actually figuring something out. He's doing better as opposed to with a reasonable P value, of course, because we're always getting P values out, which are the, the probability of how likely it is that this value is actually telling you something. Um, we're not getting anything like that for Patrick Corbin. I actually put the number in here. Um, the P value is, uh, is 0.43, which for people that don't speak stats uh, means jack shit. <laughs> it means yeah, it's, means, that's means nothing. you better not try to draw any answers from this. Uh, yeah. So he's, he's just all over the place on that, um, which in some ways is heartening because his last start, he's down near 55% on strike fraction, which is not sustainable if you look at the league average at all. Um, but I'm expecting a bounce back, so I'm going to double down this week on Patrick Corbin. Oh, there you go. Although I'm not starting him against the Cubs, so I'm going to double down when In he Wrigley? starts. Well, he's at Wrigley, and then he goes to San Francisco. Oh, that'll be a good start. So I'm going to I'm going to take that one. I'm going to expect a big bounce back, even if he does bad at even if he performs pretty poorly at Wrigley. I'm not going to freak out too much. The autocorrelation has taught me that uh, we're kind of we're kind of getting what we get with Patrick Corbin. He's basically who we think he is. We shouldn't overvalue his last four weeks, but there's still something to take there. Yep, absolutely. And those strikeouts are independent of all of this. As we also discussed last week, yeah. Yep. Yeah, um, you know, just in terms of an overarching statement, I will say that uh, I've been guilty of trying to draw a few too many correlations potentially, and uh, Eric's been great about, about knocking me back down on those. But we both we both have to we both do that with the other one. We're a little like, we're no, a little I, I'm seeing a I'm seeing a trend. It's like ah, uh, you know what? I'm yeah, I'm not seeing. Is it. that just is that, is that just because you put four hours into making this code work, and now you <laughs> yeah, like, now you really want something to come out of it? Yeah, we we've all yeah, been there yeah, before. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's turn to a relief idea. And this is something that I hadn't talked about in the past couple weeks. I've been sort of obsessing over the, my ability to pull out starters every start, but relievers every, every outing is also an interesting thing. And I was thinking signal the noise increases as you get more samples, you beat down the noise in this. I'm thinking, okay, maybe if we subdivide, which is basically what we're getting with relievers. You're seeing the same, something like a similar number of innings to starters, except spread out over multiple games. Maybe we'll actually beat this noise down a little bit. And the guy that I picked, Brandon Kitzler. Nice. Who I know that you've seen at least a few times this year, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. You have any input? I don't think thoughts? I've seen him strike anyone out. I was just but... going to say, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brandon Kinsler, I wrote my my first top line note here. He is feast and famine in terms of his runs scored. So 
one of the things that we talked about a few weeks ago is that I just like looking at every play where guys scored off of a pitcher. Brandon Kinsler, as I'm watching this in real time, click through the dates, goes, you know, zero runs, zero runs, zero runs, then two runs, two runs, two runs. Zero runs, zero runs, zero runs, two runs, two runs, two runs. You're like, yeah. what? Why is this happening? He really clusters his bad outings together. I'm wondering if they're, if he's getting in his head and sometimes. Or he was just getting over overworked a little bit or underworked. I mean, I, I don't know if I really trust Paul Molitor's <laughs> choices in, in the bullpen. No, I don't, I don't trust Paul Molitor at all. But... um. So I was wondering how much that that bears out, how much of that is a little bit of luck, um, and the fact that Brandon Kinsler is just not that great of a pitcher. No, he's not an elite pitcher at all. And one of the things that troubles me, we talked a little bit about this. I, you know, just to belabor a couple more of these points, we talked about the number of pitches per batter that guys take. I just from from tinkering with this this week. You want your reliever to be sub a um, sub starter value, essentially in pitchers per batter. Like your reliever oh, yeah. should come in; they should throw eight pitches and get out of the inning. Like that's what that's like the dream. Like in, yeah, exactly. Use two ground balls, get a strikeout, you're done. Like everybody goes home happy. Um, Brandon Kinsler does not have many outings where he throws less than four pitches to a batter on average. <sighs> yeah, no, he it's. Every every at bat is a struggle for him. <laughs> I mean, this is what I this is what I was thinking, you know, because you look at his top line stats and you're like, this is a good pitcher. This is a great reliever. We got to get this guy on our team. And then I look at any of his underlying things and I get a little worried. But that said, one of the most fun things that I realized about relievers that I hadn't ever thought about with starters, you can get outings where they have 100% strikes. Mm. <laughs> wow if you, i guess he can if yeah. you look at kinsler's strike fraction as a as a function of outing here he's got he had two outings this year where he threw nothing but strikes that is incredible yeah of course and the flip side of that luckily he never got much below 40 percent on strikes either but those two that he 40. now that is a twins bullpen pitcher those two that he threw 100 percent strikes for if you look, those are also his lowest number of pitches per batter. Mm, yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah, it makes total sense. Yep. So really interesting stuff here. Um, really, I'm I sort of hit the reset button a little bit this week when I started running this on relievers, thinking, "Wow, I'm really going to have to rethink what some of these metrics mean." So while we've built a pretty good paradigm for starters to try and understand some of these tools and the time series stuff. Uh, we're still pretty much in the infancy here with trying to understand relievers. Do you have any tips for me? Where should I go with this? What can I do? No, I mean, that's that's exactly right. I think that um, I was noticing that when I was doing a little bit of the faux war stuff. Like the, um, the K rates are, and the clustering work, the K rates for relievers are insane. If you look at them in a per nine on the per inning per nine basis it's woof. so the yeah, the disag goes nuts with those yeah exactly um i don't know i think that i think that you're you're on the right path i think that this this work might end up being 
might end up being more useful for relief pitchers actually in the long term i'm inclined to think that just because of exactly what i said at the beginning about signal the noise you get more of these outings you get better more sample. consistent yeah. yeah all right a couple of takeaways on this autocorrelation function i gotta give it to you man that was that was something that i needed to do you were we you go. were right on that autocorrelation function is going to be a valuable thing i'm going to try and push some code a little bit later this week that'll help you guys, our listeners, have a chance if you want to play with just inputting a particular player and seeing some autocorrelation on some basic stats. Um, we'll try and make that possible because I, I do really think that our eyes are deceiving us in many different cases. All right, well, you want to wrap this sucker up? I do because the first topic here, near and dear to my heart, I love seeing headlines like, how did Adrian Beltre sneak up on us to greatness? Oh, yeah. He didn't, man. How did he? Was he was just holding, sitting on a shitty team in our fantasy league forever. <laughs> yeah, he, he really was. I mean, who... He was on a... <laughs> toiling away. He's, yeah, he's he knew. He's like, man, my, my fantasy team is just so crappy it's so bad it's just so bad so this i'm gonna call i'm gonna dedicate this uh this playoff run to adrian beltran yeah no it's a bad time it's his it's his swan song this is his swan song but he's you know he's been full of antics over both the course of his career and recently you highlighted a couple a couple really good ones first of all never touch his head yeah, don't touch his head he gets so upset. if you've never seen a video of somebody trying to touch adrian beltran's head go watch it right now it is there yeah. is so funny they never get old. He gets so upset. The still shot of him moving the batter circle this week with the ump walking towards him. <laughs> yeah, so that the whole story is so funny. He was like standing outside of the batter's box, which every single uh, baseball player does, and the ump motioned for him to get into the batter's box. So he moved the batting circle. It's like just a rubber mound, just a rubber circle. He moved it, and the ump tossed him out of the game rather than having any sort of sense of humor tosses him out of the game just just hysterical oh what a guy and then and then tops it all off three thousand hits that really snuck up on me i will admit i was not aware that that was that that was coming up how many of those did you get on your fantasy team a lot i mean he's been an integral part (laughs) of driving up my batting average for years and years and years at this point yeah all right, well, I think that brings us to the review session. Robin, an international delight. Um, whether you have it out of a uh, top ramen plastic pouch or you go to a nice shop and have hard-boiled eggs and an actual meat <laughs> in it, you know, it's, it's all the same thing, right? Robin. It's all the same thing. Just all the same thing. So it's, you know. I um. There's this. There's this excellent Chinese grocery store near my house, and it has literally a wall of ramen, of just. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know. It feels like a hundred kinds. It's probably like twenty five. But I've been working my way through them because you know it really breaks the bank to spend that ninety five cents on the different packets. <laughs> I got to say, I got some pretty clear favorites. So there are, don't tell me that there aren't differences. So you're talking about the 25 cent packets of, of like, Miroshino 
or whatever the heck it's called, ramen? Or are you going through, like, the different, like, the ones that come in cups versus the ones that come in, like, all sorts of different packets? Oh, I'm working through everything. Yeah, ones with up to three flavor packets. Some of them have an oil packet that you add at the end. I mean, dude, there's there's a real world out there in prepackaged ramen to say nothing of what you semi-derisively tagged as the fancy ramen that you get at restaurants i'm trying to read you i'm not sure where you come down on this yet i like it i, oh, I mean i like ramen that was sort of um, unexpected I like the, all right i like going to i like going to a restaurant there are things about ramen that i do not like specifically how much liquid gets all over me when i eat ramen especially out in public and how you have to have that like bent posture like over the noodles like, <laughs> you know yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, I really quite enjoy it. Um, pretty good. Though, it's one of those foods that, like, sort of like pizza, where it's like good pizza, bad pizza. It's still pizza. Yeah. It's, it's really good. So if you're giving me top ramen, I'm going to have it. And I've been having a lot of ramen lately because I'm sick, and I have ramen right. whenever I'm sick. I have two questions. One, how much do you break the noodles up when you're prepping it? Um, I try not to break the noodles. Interesting. I like that strategy. So you're, you like, maybe, th- I think that might contribute to some of your getting the soup all over you. I mean, you got those, the long noodles just waggling all over the place. They're just spraying. Oh, I mean, yeah, of course. But I mean, that's what you're going to get in the restaurant too. You get really, really long noodles. That's, they're supposed to be really long noodles. I will say that I break my ramen up. You break your ramen. Because... And the because this is this is question number two. Have you ever used the noodles? Have you ever used a ramen packet for anything other than its intended purpose, specifically a salad? Yes, yes, I have used ramen noodles for other other purposes. So good, right? That's Most actually definitely. a very yeah. real purpose. Well, cool. So I think we both agree ramen is good. Do you have you gone to many uh, ramen restaurants? Oh yeah, in your day? Oh yeah. Any good Saint ones in Saint Paul? I should, I should try. I don't know about ramen ones in Saint Paul. I don't, I don't have anything to say about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, well, next time you're here, we might have to go venturing. Time for a little housekeeping. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter. Fantasy Tools, mind the Z. Thank you, Mild Manor, for letting us use your tunes. Be sure to follow them on SoundCloud and Facebook. Feel free to email us with questions or comments. Send us messages at fantasy.tools at gmail.com. Again, mind the Z. All I've got left is worst luck to you, buddy. Worst luck to you, too.